Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. I'm really excited to have with us Brett Tolman, Executive Director of Right on Crime, joining us to talk about the uptick in all these different localities and cities. Uh, crime is up, and there's a reason behind it. And he joins us from Right on Crime. Uh, we've had him on before, and we've always had a great discussion. The website is rightoncrime.com, rightoncrime.com. Brett, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Stacey. Great to be with you again. So since we last chatted, you have had a little bit of news professionally. Tell us, you are now the executive director of Right on Crime, correct? Yes, I am. You know, I I love, um, you know, representing the little guy and battling the government often. And, and I did that for many years in private practice. And before that, you know, as a federal prosecutor and then the U.S. attorney. And I kind of thought that that was, you know, maybe my, my, the full scope of my career, but I had a couple of people ask me if I would consider being the executive director of Right on Crime. And, you know, at first I didn't think that would be something that I would, I I would probably entertain, but the more I dug into what, you know, they were going into, what they envisioned, which was to allow me to assemble a team of people, um, you know, conservatives that are, uh, interested in reforming the criminal justice system, but doing it based on data, based on research, and you know, never forgetting victims of crime, and never forgetting that there are some people that deserve to be in prison. So I saw this as an opportunity to to maybe become the most important voice across the United States. And we're now in nine states, and we work federal issues. And the hope is we'll be in two dozen states over the next uh, three to five years. That sounds completely doable. I think the the big deal is you're speaking to an issue that it crosses uh, political parties, it crosses socioeconomics. People want the criminal justice system to reflect our, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And it's our Anglo-Saxon form of uh, criminal justice that everyone, it's one of the primary reasons people move to the United States is because of that. Um, but then there's there's things like victims' rights and there's also balancing you know, if you've committed a crime, you still have rights. You're, you're not, you know, completely stripped of all of your your rights under the Constitution. So how do we balance that? And um, that's an ongoing conversation. And I, I look forward to seeing you in two dozen states because I think everywhere people have good information um, on criminal justice reform, on bail reform. Uh, these kinds of things will assist us in having a more, it, it should be, equal treatment under the law. I don't want to use the leftist term equitable because equity is actually not a thing that we want. Right. <laughs> but we do we do want liberty and justice for all. And I think right on crime kind of epitomizes that, which brings us to I I've seen all of these stories um, huge jumps in crime. The headlines are Portland on the verge of the most violent year in modern history. Ha- leftist Hannah Nicole or Nicole Hannah Jones, I'm sorry, Nicole Hannah Jones. She wrote an op-ed, What's to Blame for the Murder Spike? All these stories all over the place. You had uh, arson charges finally leveled against an Antifa rider who was, you know, burning down uh, police precincts. But that's the rarity. Most of what we're seeing is constant headlines about how crime is up. Yeah. And let me first state, you know, if you look over those last several decades, there's a general trend of crime decreasing um, from high water marks in the in the 80s and 90s and then it's generally been been decreasing we see a spike in in murder crimes and we see a spike in violent crimes 
And there's many factors. I, I don't think, you know, people that are studying it can really identify. But let's take a look at some things we do know. If you're, if you're in an area where you have, like New York, decided you're just not going to hold anybody, you know, who's been charged with anything, no matter how violent they may be or how many times they've been arrested for violent acts or convicted for violent acts, their version of bail reform was a version that, that resulted in more harm to the community. You look at Portland, for example, if you start... If you start screaming and yelling and blaming police officers for for every ill in society and and argue you should defund police officers, what's going to be the result? You're going to have a hard time keeping and maintaining your police forces. And once that happens and that message is sent out there, like in California, that we're not going to arrest certain, you know, we're not going to investigate certain crimes. We see a direct reaction to those policies that have, been, have come as a result of emotion rather than, you know, what has worked in other states. Let's try to replicate our best practices. And there are some states doing some amazing things right now. So let's let's talk about the amazing things first. And then I, I want to pivot over to um, this, this op-ed by um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, where, of course, she, she wrote this for the Washington Post. Um, actually, it was her responding to a column in the Washington Post by Henry Olson, who he he said, what's to blame for the murder spike? Certainly anti-police fervor didn't help. And he's writing about that. And then she responds um, with a lot of leftist dribble. And I, I'm I'm you know, I'm, I'm one of those people where I I think we can actually inform ourselves with people on the left. But it's kind of crazy that that she gets to have this huge voice in a conversation where she doesn't have a background in policing. She's never been on ride along. She doesn't know anything. And she responds and it becomes this national news story. We're, it's like we're elevating the voices of morons. But before we get to the morons, what are states doing? <laughs> what are states doing successfully to deal with this? Well, you look at the, the Texas legislature this past session passed a, a bail reform measure in which they said, "Look, we don't want individuals who have they're they're nonviolent and they have low level offenses, but they can't make bail sitting in our pre- prisons pre-trial, where we we have a, a system that's supposed to be a presumption of innocence. But at the same time, they said we can't have individuals that clearly shouldn't be out on the streets based on prior arrests, prior incidents, prior convictions, being able to to." you know, post bail as high as we set it and then get out and commit further crimes. We've seen this in Harris County, for example. So what they did is they said, we're going to allow judges the ability to assess risk as well and not just have a formula for bail that would allow these sort of, you know, in, you know, disparity in treatment based on, you know, the, the type of crime. And, and that's that's going in a direction where you're allowing a judge to have more information in front of him or her and say, okay, this individual needs to remain in custody, um, you know, because I'm afraid if they post bail, here's all the, the strong indicators that they will commit a crime of violence. That's bail reform that's responsible, and it's it, it has safety of the community in mind. So those are not things that it seem like, you know, like I need to rip my hair out or something over them. 
are they receiving a lot of opposition or is there support or are you having kind of to basically slog them through like a big boulder on your back to get them passed in these states? Great, great points. I mean, to you and I and probably, you know, most most uh, Americans, you say that's kind of a no brainer. What, what, what's the difficulty? Well, you know, the difficulty is you have folks on the left that want to push a, you know, more extreme type of bail reform where, where, you know, you you let people out and they're out on their own and you you don't you do what New York did where they said, look, for all of these types of offenses, we're not going to hold you in custody. Well, you can start there, but if that's where your policy ends, you're not analyzing whether or not that person you just arrested on a low level drug offense is a really violent person. And and so it's it's been tougher than than one would expect, and politics has gotten in the way certainly. And um, you know, like anything, it's incredibly difficult to even get some of those no brainer common sense changes through. Yeah. So the 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 issue that we have is a lot of people really have allowed themselves to become enamored with the idea that you know, there really aren't violent people. There are just people who might be mentally ill or they're hungry or they, you know, they need some kind of help. And there are people who are hungry. There are people who are mentally ill and there are people who've fallen on hard times and they might lose control of themselves on one instance, but they don't have a history of violence. They don't have multiple arrests. They don't have, you know, psyche valves, things like that. Um, so they, they are that one-off instance where they would probably be fine if they were, ROR'd. But for people who have extensive arrest histories with the police, people who you literally can call down to a precinct and everyone there knows their name, um, you know, people they've injured police officers, they've injured other people in the past. They have convictions and smacks on the wrist from other altercations in the public. Those people are dangerous. They are actually violent. There's some evil there and they should be held without bail. Why is this so hard to delineate between those two categories of people? I think that's the difference between the left and the right right now, especially in criminal justice reform efforts. You know, I'm very proud of the time that I spent as a prosecutor. I didn't, I wasn't perfect. You don't make, you know, you don't make every decision perfectly. But, you know, I put people away like the kidnapper of Elizabeth Smart, Brian David Mitchell. I knew if he wasn't in prison for the rest of his life, that he would continue to harm and hurt and rape, um, kidnap and do those sort of things because it is who he is and how he has become. And and you may have some mental illness in there, you may have some others, but there are certain people and we, you know, the, con- the conservative side is the, really the only voice right now saying it's okay to put bad people who are going to harm other people in jail. And, and that should be something that is embraced by both sides. And it used to be. It used to be embraced by both sides. Now, we, we can go too far in that regard, and we can seek longer penalties than are needed. And and that's happened in every jurisdiction as politicians battle to become, you know, tougher on crime. But Stacy, what I like to say, and what, um, you know, right on crime is really pushing is, you can be tough on crime, and still be fair in your in your prosecution and punishment of the criminal. 
and and that means you can you can look at how long some of these sentences are, or you can look at other aspects of the criminal justice system that are not fair. Because for every Brian David Mitchell out there, I also know of some individuals who are serving years in prison longer than they need to, and and because of the system. And so, if we can look at this system effectively and and do it always with you know an eye towards public safety and individual liberty balancing those two, we can, we can make a much better criminal justice system. And that's what I think people really want. We, we, we have a lot of people who are, uh, they're like, they're do-gooders, professional do-gooders, and it's all about making themselves feel as if they're doing something. And then we have people Great who point. are, you know, right. So then, then yeah. you know, we have reformers and reformers are people who they will adopt a reform, support it, and push it through and see it to the end, whether it takes a year, 10 years, or 30 years, because they know the reform, while it may not make them feel amazing, is required to protect people and to strengthen our criminal justice system. And so we... Well, we, well said. I literally like that because the left has kind of hijacked the word reform, but it yeah. shouldn't be because we should be wanting to reform areas of our government that are broken or need fixing. So... That is the message that we need to kind of trumpet, which is, you know, so being a do-gooder only makes you feel good, but being a reformer may not feel good, but will actually bring lasting change that can um, save lives. And even because I think the, the other part that we don't discuss is the rehabilitation, right? So if people aren't being rehabilitated and, and it's a whole nother conversation, like so right on crime works on criminal justice reform and strengthening the criminal justice system. But there has to be another avenue with which we kind of address our lack of rehabilitation for people who are incarcerated. And some people do. They go in and they're driven inside, right, Rhett? They, they go in and they finish their GED. They, they get into some kind of counseling or some kind of therapy in, in jail. They don't become a part of the criminal element in jail. They, they try to fix themselves so they can come out and be someone else. But most of our criminals are not doing that. Yeah, I think it's poetic what you just said. And Right on Crime is renewing uh, their focus and interest to include a lot of effort on reentry. Because let's face it, 95% of all those incarcerated are getting out. So if that's the case, what shape are they in? And why is it we don't care about starting that rehabilitation and that reentry process while they're incarcerated rather than just letting them out and saying, hey, good luck. You can't get a job because you don't have a driver's license. You now have a tag of, of being a felon. You don't have any resources. We didn't have much by training or, or, or education that we could help you with, but darn it, you better succeed when you're out there or else we'll throw you back in. And, and, and that's, that's what we're doing in a lot of jurisdictions. So I, I, I really praise you and others that are such a strong voice for, for meaningful change in this country. And that is one in which if we could focus on that, we'll lower the crime rate. That's being tough on crime. You're reducing recidivism and reducing crime if you're providing them an avenue to be successful when they get out. And there's some great, great people out there that are, you know, doing some great things, but we need a national attention on it. So let's now turn to, and I, I agree with you 100%. I'm, I'm, I really want to see more of us become reform minded. Um, and maybe this conversation goes a ways to helping people kind of delineate between the two. So now let's let's talk about the one who calls herself Ida Bay Wells on Twitter. She's actually Hannah Jones. And um, 
she's famous for being black and wrong all the time. And I can say that because I'm black. You probably couldn't get away with saying that, but I'm going to say it for both of us. So she says here, and and this is actually a great article um, that Henry Olson has written, What's to Blame for the Murder Spike? He is saying murders in the United States rose by 30% in 2020, largest one-year increase on record ever. Uh, he, he calls out the defund the police movement, and he talks about places like Seattle, which saw resignations nearly quadruple and retirements double from 2019 to 2020, and they're short 100 officers. And so the rest of the, the, the LEOs are stretched thin, and the response times are up, you know, up in the stratosphere. And then, of course, you have Austin. And these notice there's something similar about all of these cities that he highlights in his piece. Austin, Texas, another liberal hellhole. I'll say it. Other people don't feel like they are, they have the, the right to say it, but I'm giving everyone the right to say <laughs> places that are exclusively ruled by Democrats are often hellholes. It's time to start calling them that because Portland's a beautiful city. So is Seattle. So is Austin. But the beauty of the city is being marred by things that are happening because leftists are in charge. So you have Austin defunding the police by $100 million. You have Portland. They lost a ton of officers, and they are not able to replace them simply because their atmosphere there is straight-up anti-police. So in in behest of him writing all of that, she responds by calling him vapid. She says he sickens her, and he he's gleefully – she accuses him of gleefully using death, especially black death, to score political points um, – and that law enforcement is willing to let people die because people protested against them. So I go back to my original thing with her, which is that she's a moron, but she's a famous moron. And when she tweets stuff, people retweet it and they get on, you know, the, the little heart thing and they, they pound that little heart to death. What is happening here with her constantly having this huge input on things she clearly has no expertise in? Yeah, it's it's the hard reality of social media now. I'm amazed at the, the platforms and how you know, powerful uh, individuals can be and really out of touch with, you You look at the, the, you know, the black community in many of these cities are saying, please don't pull away resources. Please don't, you know, we want some change in police. You know, you can, you can be advocating for police reform. There's, there's several areas that we can reform, um, you know, how a police officer responds, who, who responds, you know, how uh, police shootings are investigated, uh, use of force is investigated. All of us, you know, that want to roll up sleeves and actually be productive can, can find some reform. What I don't understand, though, is how you can argue or object to the fact that these cities that are pulling away tremendous resources from these police, you know, police um, um, departments are impacting our, our, you know, inner city communities disparately than they are the, the rest of the state that they're operating in. And I see that as doing the exact wrong thing at the, at the wrong time. And, and, and so if we, if we have people like, like, you know, her voice and she's out there calling someone who's trying to describe the reality of what's happening. And I've been in Austin recently and I've been in several of these cities and I've seen the level of crime and fear and insecurity among those that are living there. And it's real. It's, it's powerful. And you're starting to also see many of those on the left that are living in these communities saying, Hey, we might've gone too far. <laughs> so I'm not laughing because of the carnage. I'm laughing because that's what it takes to teach people. So right? as we yeah. close out here, can we just cast our minds back to when we were kids? And my mom would tell yeah. me, Oh, 
oh, so you're going to have to learn this the hard way. And then she just wouldn't say anything else. And I think to myself, what is she talking about? Because, you know, I was a kid. And then later, when the repercussions were smacking me in the face, I'd go to my mom. Um, well, what am I going to do about this? And how can I? Because I, I can't do this. And I also can't do that. Because remember when I was telling you that I was going to do such and such? She's like, yeah. And I told you then it was a bad idea. And now you have to deal with this, this and this. She said, now you're going to have to learn the hard way. You have to deal with this, this and this. And I said, well, how, how can I, how can I? She's like, well, you're going to have to deal with it. How are you going to deal with it? And I'd be sitting there thinking, why isn't she helping me? And she'd say, I did try to help you when I told you not to yeah. do X. These people are like that. Only, you know, I'm going to tell you, Brett, as old as I am, and, and I, I love it when someone who's older than me by like 30 years says, oh, my gosh, you're such a baby. And I think to myself, am I? Am I still a baby? Because I feel like a dried up old husk inside because of what I do for a living. But Brett, come on. Like. Do are we are we really to a place in America right now where people have been so poorly raised by their parents that they need to have their neighbors killed and their neighborhoods destroyed before they will admit that they were wrong about wanting to defund the police and allowing protesters to riot because rioting and protesting are not the same thing. Is that where where we are right now? Where these people have to learn that yeah. hard? Yeah, I, it, it's sad and and uh, and probably true. Uh, you know, I liked your description of when you were a kid. I. I can remember my father telling me to, you know, things, my mother and father telling me to not do something and then I do it. And I had to, I had to suffer the consequences in, in a lot of ways. I've always been, I've argued that the left is, is the first to react based on an emotion of an event. And, and that's not all your first reaction is not always a good one. And, and so I, I wish that weren't the case, but you look at every area we're dealing with, whether it is, you know, the immigration issue, whether it's COVID, um, education, um, you know, criminal justice issues, there's always some event that triggers a group. And that, so they, they legislate based on the emotion of an anecdote. And that's dangerous. And we were warned to not do that. Our, you know, the founding fathers warned us to not do that. And legislation and change in policy should should go slowly and they set up a system that would do that but now everybody wants their own way and so we're seeing in these cities they have to experience the the harm they have to experience the aggravation before they finally see that that policy won't work as opposed to just looking at history and looking at what's going on in other cities and then using that that research to form form better policies more thoughtfully. Well, we do have the ability to simply stay off of the hell site that is Twitter or read Hannah Jones's tweets, maybe read them in funny British or, or uh, Australian accents at the dinner table so our children can understand how idiotic this is. Because for every child that we inculcate to this so a child can recognize idiocy when they see it, I believe another angel gets its wings and, you know, cape and also That's the sword, awesome. you know, their, their Iron Man outfit or whatever <laughs> angels wear. Maybe they look more like Thor. Who knows? But they, they get their thing going on when we teach kids how to discern the truth. Um, we, we have a lot of work to do. We do. But I am so excited about your new role at Right on Crime and your expertise that you're bringing to that role and the spreading of your organization across the country. I can't wait to see it. Can't wait to have you back here to talk some more about common sense uh, reform in the criminal justice system. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brett, and, and for bringing all of this just to us, to, to spreading it around. I love it. Thank you, Stacey. Great to be with you.
<laughs> right? The website is rightoncrime.com. And Brett will be joining us again. He is an amazing resource for us. Brett Tolman, executive director of Right on Crime, rightoncrime.com. We will be uh, having more conversations soon. Thank you, sir. Look forward to it. Thank you. All right. So let me tell you about one more thing that's amazing, and that is affordable health care without all of the wokeness, without the nonsense. This is the Alliance for Shared Health, and there are over 40,000 households participating, and you could be one of them. Signing up is easy, and you get the same benefits that you can get with your current plan with them, but you can save up to 70% on your monthly premiums. So listen. Virtual care provider, zero cost. Prescriptions from the pharmacy, you use your share prescription card. You can order your lab and imaging tests, but do it with discounts of up to 80%. So open enrollment is now, and it's next month, and it's the month after that, because they allow you to sign up whenever you're ready. And you can go to stacyontheright.com. You can also go to familyvisionmedia.org. Banner ads all over the place. Just click one. It takes you right through to the site. And if you need further assistance, you can also get someone to help you over the phone, explain, answer any questions. They are so responsive. So check out the banner ads at my website and at familyvisionmedia.org. The Alliance for Shared Health is changing healthcare and changing lives. And I'm Stacy Washington, stacyontheright.com. And it's been a pleasure to be with you today. God bless you. Um, I'll be back with you soon. Have a great day.